please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. I imagine there have always been people who ask the question, where did I come from? Depending on what generation you are in, you may have been raised with a book by that title, Where Did I Come From? Or maybe you read it to your kids. We answer that question, Where Did I Come From? in one way when we are talking to five-year-olds and in a different way when we are talking to 15-year-olds. And the people of the ancient period when today's scripture was written answer the question, Where Did We Come From? very differently from how we answer it today. The book of Genesis dates its earliest sources to about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. We here are living some 2,000 years after Jesus' birth. We answer the same questions in different ways because we live in a different world from those ancient predecessors in faith. I believe there are two distinct kinds of questions behind the question, where did I come from? A religious question and a scientific question. The religious question is really, why? Why am I here? And the scientific question is really, how? How did this happen? We ask why we are here and how this came to be. And both questions help us gain a broad understanding of where we came from. I love the creation stories in the book of Genesis. They give us vivid images and an imaginative picture of how God might work at the work of creation and how this place we call Earth might have been formed. Longtime churchgoers have probably heard the story many times. And sometimes when a story becomes too familiar or too often used, it becomes difficult to really hear it. We may stop really taking it in. When something is familiar and we think we know how it goes, we can kind of tune it out a bit or rely on familiarity rather than paying attention to what we're hearing. One of the reasons the biblical story of creation can become so familiar to some of us, perhaps overly familiar, is, as Zora said, that this is a story we teach our kids from some of the earliest days of Sunday school. My niece, Sadie, was probably about six when she asked my sister something about the difference between Christians and Jews. I don't remember the details of the conversation, but my sister said something about believing in Jesus or not believing in Jesus. Sadie said, I believe in Jesus. I also believe in fairies. Context is everything, right? So coming from my niece, this was an entirely earnest statement. But I can easily picture my atheist cousin saying the same thing as a sarcastic dig against what he sees as the nonsensical thinking of religious people. So at age six or seven, it makes perfect sense to Sadie to say, I believe in Jesus. I also believe in fairies. And that left me wondering, 
how we can equip our kids with a mature faith in God that stays with them when they outgrow their belief in fairies. This is the same issue we run into when we look at the biblical story of creation, or for that matter, any of the many biblical stories we teach to our children. I think it's Brian McLaren who suggests that a significant reason the church loses people is that we offer elementary school answers to graduate school questions. If we are to nurture a mature adult faith, we have to do better. One thing you might forget or miss in the accounts of creation in your Bible, if they've become overly familiar, is that there are actually two creation stories in Genesis, one in the first chapter and one in the second chapter. We read the first today. The two creation stories are distinctly different from one another. Go back and take a look when you have a chance if you're not already familiar with the differences. In particular, the two versions have different explanations for how human beings were created and for the order in which God created things. This is one of so very many examples of why I don't understand people who say they take the Bible literally. How can you take two things literally that contradict each other? It just isn't possible. When a story is too familiar, the details also become fuzzy. Did you notice how our, our scripture describes the structure of the universe? God creates a dome to separate the waters from the waters. And this dome is called sky. Then the waters below the dome, below the sky, are gathered together to reveal land. So picture it, there's sky, this dome, and below the sky, there's the earth and the seas. And above the sky, there's water. Sky is up, earth is down, and then more water is up even higher than the sky. The earth and seas are the middle layer there. Then God sets lights in the dome, in the sky, stars and sun and moon. And all these lights are in this middle dome, in between the earth and seas and the waters above the sky. This is not how we see the earth and universe today. We no longer see the earth and universe as a set of three domes. The fancy word for that is cosmology, the word that refers to how you understand the structure of the cosmos. We have a different cosmology today than they did in the times of our Bible. Today we believe that the universe is so enormous that it is difficult for the human mind to grasp. The universe has no up or down, no center, no edge. There are billions of galaxies, billions of stars, countless planets. Scientific research leads us to an understanding of a Big Bang, and that since the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding for maybe 14 billion years. So the biblical story of creation is familiar to many of us. And hearing it might not make much impact on us. But at best, when we hear the story with fresh ears or read it with fresh eyes, a natural reaction to the story is, wow. I have honestly never understood why some people believe that faith and science are in conflict with one another. Faith answers why questions. 
theological questions about God's nature and God's role and God's relationship to us and to all of creation. Science answers how questions, questions seeking explanations for how things happen. My interest in this puzzle of how some people place faith and science in conflict with one another goes back years. When I was a junior in high school and I had a chance in an English class to choose what I would write about, I chose uh, the autobiography of Charles Darwin to write a paper on. And my paper explored the ways that I saw my Christian faith and Darwin's science, not to mention Darwin's own roots in faith, which he had, the ways I saw my faith and Darwin's science as complementing one another. One of my favorite theologians, although she calls herself an amateur theologian, is Sarah Maitland. One of the things she writes about is her conviction that our God and our faith are big enough to embrace new scientific discoveries, far too big to be threatened by knowledge. Here's one passage from her book, and I think I may have shared it before. She writes, Eventually, in 1663, Galileo turned up, saying something like, Sorry, gang, but I have been looking through this little telescope thing, which I have invented, at what God's cosmos is actually doing. And I've got news for you. Ptolemy was wrong. Copernicus was right. We haven't got a geocentric universe. Did the theological authorities of his day say, Wow, you mean God is even cleverer than we thought? Did they say, thank you for giving us something to work on, something that will reveal yet more of the divine to us? Did they even say, are you sure? No, they said, shut up or we'll kill you. The point is the wow God wants us to say, wow. God wants us to acknowledge God as the source of all that we have and all that we are, and to respond by feeling that awe, that wow. People of faith can have diverse understandings of what we mean when we say God. Some of us see God personally as somebody, although, of course, a vastly different kind of somebody from a human somebody. Some of us see God as spirit and as a spirit in ways that cannot be personalized. And some of us see God as something more like a vast and complex energy. I think all of these diverse understandings of God lend themselves to a sense that what we call God is behind the intricacies of creation and the science behind creation. I think all of these diverse understandings of God lend themselves to that wow. Sarah Maitland suggests that Galileo's discoveries gave us even more reason to say wow. And if any of you have delved into things like chaos theory or other newer aspects of physics, perhaps you see more and more reasons to think, wow, I do. I recently listened to a podcast of Brian Greene, a physicist and mathematician at Columbia, and his talk of contemporary physics just blew me away. I will never really understand that stuff, but I sure can feel that wow. 
In 2006, uh, Katie and I took a family vacation to Washington, D.C. And at that time, the Smithsonian's Museum of Natural History was in the midst of redoing their entire exhibit on human origins. Recent discoveries have changed so much of our thinking about how human life has emerged that the Smithsonian had to make these huge changes in order to more accurately represent the science of human origins. Wow. Perhaps embracing the wow is one way to facilitate that movement from a six-year-old's understanding of creation and God to an understanding of creation and God that fits someone with a PhD in physics. Awe is an appropriate response to the created order at any age or at any developmental stage or at any level of scientific understanding. I've read a little bit about this version of creationism that they're calling intelligent design. As best I can tell, intelligent design leaves what they call beyond science to God. They say there are observable phenomena in nature that are too complicated or intricate to be explained by science or attributed solely to evolution. To me, that is a way of saying in effect that what science can explain belongs to science and what science cannot explain belongs to God. What happens then as our scientific studies and knowledge grow and expand and can increasingly explain increasingly complex and intricate natural phenomena? Do we then attribute less and less to God? That is ridiculous. God is bigger than that. Too big to be relegated to the margins of the explainable. And it's not only ridiculous, it is also how Christianity is at risk of failing people who are ready to mature in faith. It is how we continue to give elementary school answers to graduate school questions. Christian faith and the Bible answer why, not how. Faith speaks to our intangible and vibrant sense that there is some energy, some spirit, we might say, behind the mechanical workings of creation. Why are we here? Because there is a God, and it is hardwired into God's nature to create it is hardwired into God's nature to be life-giving. I imagine God as the author of creation, as the sculptor who crafted the very laws of physics, as the great mathematician who wrote the formulas that explain aspects of how the world works. We are here to enjoy and appreciate and care for God's good creation. The complex elements of creation exist to support and sustain one another in patterns that are beyond our complete understanding. God, our creator, is both scientist and artist, and most of all is one who loves and blesses all of creation. And so we pass the stories along to our children— we don't teach them that the universe was created in six days rather than 
14 billion years, but we teach them that there is a God who is the author of it all and the artist who forms us. We teach our children that all of creation is precious because it belongs to God. And we teach our children that they and we are precious in God's eyes. We teach our children both to understand science and to say, wow, and to give credit where credit is due, credit to this awesome God. Amen. <laughs>